Welcome to the Faces podcast. We're a Christian and Muslim charity working to build resilience in faith communities against child sexual exploitation and other forms of harm. We'll be talking about what faith and interfaith work means to us and how we embed an inclusive and authentic approach throughout our work. Uh, Welcome to our podcast. Today we are going to be discussing the sentencing of Eleanor Williams, a 22-year-old from Borough in Furness, um, who is was charged with nine counts of perverting the course of justice. It's a very sad case. It plays on a narrative coming out of Rochdale and basically blaming Asian gangs for something that they that these innocent people didn't do. And so it's a, a a case that brings up a lot of different issues regarding child protection, um, exploitation, religion, uh, gangs, um, a whole load of issues on how the police investigate things. It brings up issue after issue and is so damaging. There are lives that have been ruined by this. There are businesses that have gone down as a result of some of these lies. There, there is even a paper that has, has is no longer in existence, um, possibly due to some of these things that was mentioned in, in, in sentencing. And, and also there are people living lives in fear of reprisals from the public over lies that have been told about them, who even in the sentencing when that's been brought up, probably aren't safe uh, to 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 go wherever they want to go um, in these days. And so, in in all of this, there's a narrative, and also that narrative can be very damaging to victims coming forward in the future. And there's a lot in the story. Um, there's a lot of public support that got behind these lies. I think they said uh, something like uh, um, something like 100,000 people on Facebook supporting some of these situations. That's a weight of public opinion, but behind a lie. And that's been exposed, the sentencing that has come out this week, uh, live on TV, actually showed us that there are lies upon lies and layers of lies, and on top of that, incredible lengths to try and fabricate evidence to back up those lies. Um, even this this girl hit herself with a hammer to form injuries on herself to, to actually back up some of her lies. Um, there's psychiatric reports on it. The mystery around it is why did she do this? Why on earth would someone do this to other people's lives? Uh, there's a lot of layers to this. And with me today, I've got Peter Adams and uh, Lucy uh, joining me to chat through um, these aspects and the different implications of this. And this is a story that's broken, but has massive ramifications, massive things we can learn from it. And so I'd like to throw that open and see uh, what wisdom you guys have to bring on some of these things. Yes, I think so. I think we we know from the ways that the media reported some of the abuse that happened in Rochdale and Rotherham and different places in Telford, 
um, that describes the, the, the criminal exploitation and the sexual exploitation by Muslim grooming gangs and created this fear of Muslim men as sexual predators. And the way that that was uh, particularly um, as a kind of machine of real fear and hatred, it was it was fed and fed and fed by the media and then energised by, um, by a lot of... Uh, um, white men in, in far right <laughs> gangs themselves stirring up real fear and racial hatred and fear of Muslims. And we know that that created um, two really problematic things. One is a fear of um, people in safeguarding responding to dis uh, real evidence that things were going wrong and that young women really were being abused, a fear of acting on it because they didn't want to be seen to be racist. Because this racism was present um, against um, Muslim Pakistani men in particular, and a conflation of their identities with being sexual predators. That meant that people whose job it was to protect young women in particular didn't act on evidence and concerns because they were afraid in some part of the backlash against those men that would be present in the wider community. And I think in part what we can see is that those fears were founded because look what happened. Um, not just to, uh, we, we know that the, the men in this case, the couple of white men that she accused, whose lives have been utterly devastated by these false acts accusations but we also see what was what was triggered and activated was the fear of Muslim men and this this idea that the network of Muslim businesses that are sort of waiting to um, exploit or abuse young white girls and some of the problematic thing is that we saw uh, a reaction from the public of the injustice of inaction previously in cases like Rochdale and Rotherham where where, where people did not intervene um, that, that actually what happens now when there's a false ac accusation is 100,000 people go, well, in the past, no one did anything. And so it's our job to buy the merchandise, to share the images, to, to write, you know, racist or, to, you know, graffiti on the, on the side of um, someone's house. I think that the case said that there was a tripling of hate crimes in the local area that summer when this was going on during lockdown. Uh, that kind of sense of almost like vigilante justice because we can't trust the system to do the right thing. The irony is that underneath all of that is the same thing, I would suggest, which is um, an, a, a, a misunderstanding of what is driving sexual exploitation and sexual abuse. It is not someone's religion. No, 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 no. It's not no. even their gender, although actually the kind of the particular problematic experience of masculinity does drive it. But it's not essentially being a male and it's not essentially being a Pakistani and it's not owning a, a business or any of those things. Yeah. And this, um, I mean, thank you, Lucy. I mean, both of you have expressed this so brilliantly. And I mean, actually what it, I think I'm just sitting here reflecting on, it takes us right back to the reason that we, a few of us, got together and started Faces. <laughs> it was the way that abuse, child, child sexual abuse, exploitation was being utilised in different places and the narratives around it. Yes, one of them was the, the Muslim grooming gang stories, but actually the presence, the justification, the apparent use of religion to justify abuse and so on. It was, it was, there was so much going on that we, we said we can't, you know, we've got to work together to, 
to counter some of these narratives. And yes, very early on, the, the Muslim grooming gang story was one, but I mean, as, you, as I look on now after so several years of doing this stuff, actually looking back at the beginning, our fears of what that narrative could do and would do in society have just become more and more evident. I mean, it's been there. It's been driving the, the far right story right back to 2005 and so on in, in Yorkshire with the, the growth of the British National Party, the BNP, and the way that the stories in Keithley and so on drove the, the elections there as they're driving some of the early thought thinking of the English Defence League here in Luton. It was, it's been there in so many places now. And it that narrative has just got out. I mean, even just a few weeks ago, the the stories around that hotel with asylum seekers up in Liverpool, the thing that fired the crowd were the stories of apparent um, attempts to groom a young white girl by a refugee. That was what stirred it all up. Um, and they responded to a story. And so it, it's, it's just run on time after time after time over the years. It's one of the principal things that is raised against refugees. And we see, we see the impact of this story now just loose in the community and taken so, so taken for granted that a young woman is able to, to put together a story, to fabricate a, a story of abuse. And nobody asks any questions about it. Nobody questions its veracity. Because as soon as it's claimed, it is it is a given that Muslim men do this stuff. It's, I mean, you know, I'm just sitting and thinking here, you know, here we are, three Christians, today without any of our Muslim colleagues, but mm -hmm. actually together saying totally that the work we've been doing is, I mean, I, I hate to say, Personally, it's horrible to have to say this case proves everything we've been saying. <laughs> but actually, the reality is it does. Yeah. I take no joy in that whatsoever because of the, as you just said, Nigel and Lucy, the hundreds of lives messed up by this. It's so tragic. But actually, it's, it's good to be able to sit back and reflect on this story. And the way that actually it says what we've been doing for the last um, eight years or so since we started thinking about faces, it's just been so important. I know. I think it intersects with a number of things that are sort of happening in our culture and more widely that that all come together in these moments. So we we have seen our prime minister you know, stand up and um, with, the, with the slogan "Stop the boats." Uh, and that what, what he is, what he and Sir Braverman are, are trying to do in their response and trying to um, politically 
uh, <laughs> respond to people's fears of immigration intersects with not just a fear of immigration generally, of this, this sense of being overwhelmed as a nation by people, but it's about ideas of who these people are and how we see them. And I think we we see in, in moments like this, that story you were just saying, um, talking about Peter, of the fear of who, who, who we are putting in hotels and only giving £5 a day to eat kind of Oh, sandwiches from the local shop and um, moving children around uh, who are in these hotels as well, um, just endlessly because we can't, we, we are not, we are not looking after them. That that it, it, it is that intersects with a, a fears of not just being overwhelmed, but fears that, that whoever we are letting in <laughs> um, is a threat to us, a threat to our children, a threat, a threat to our kind of families or a threat to our, our nation or a sense of identity. And I think we, I saw this on, um, on Twitter last week because somebody who I, I knew through when I was working in this field, kind of CSE research, probably five years ago or so, Ella Cobain, who, who had um, put in a complaint about a news programme, Grooming Gangs, Britain Shame. Um, and she, she put in a complaint to say this, this, this thing, this, this programme again draws on those same racist ideas that there are Muslim grooming gangs out there and we all need to be afraid. She, she said that this is, um, this breaches all kinds of, guidelines and laid out how that happened but what happened on twitter then um in terms of the backlash to her just saying this isn't okay to talk about people in this way just reveals just how important it is that we keep talking about this um because these uh, these 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 men essentially <laughs> who are part of who are gathering together i think uh who, who have kind of st george's crosses on their twitter feeds were posting images of um, loaded guns pointed to her head, saying they're going to come for you next. Um, you, you're, you're not protecting the children. You're part of the problem. And there is, it is so important that we 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 say in these moments, it is not that is not what is going on. That is not what is happening here. Uh, because otherwise, that we're, yeah, we're going to just see more and more that space taken up by all of that hatred, that hatred and violence, actually. Yeah, and, and I think um, we, we're living in a world where narratives are incredibly powerful and systems are showing their cracks. And so coming out of COVID, you're seeing a lot of things where a lot of negative press towards police and a lot of negative press towards government, a lot of negative press to all the institutions around. And as a result of that, there's belief in community narratives that is imperfect and, and people are running with. And so instead of racializing um, organized criminal gangs, <laughs> um, criminal gangs operate all over the world in every single nation and in England <laughs> from an English base as well. And so the danger is just because there are criminal gangs out there who will do horrendous things to people in all societies, trying to limit it to one racial group or two racial groups or a few racial groups to try and say that it's the other people that are the problem hides the issue that is a problem in every single nation. 
And so there's some of these narratives. There is a need to be aware of criminal gangs, but to uh, compartmentalize it into different groups in society that you want to take down is not a clever approach. And there's very, very dangerous approach. And I think this is part of one of the dangers that this story exposes is the unspoken narratives that are operating underneath the surface of mm-hmm. society mm-hmm. and are more powerful than the systems that are meant to protect people in in people's minds. And and I think um, combined with this is the difficulty of trying to hear victims' voices. And I know from um, other experiences that there is a desperation in, in, in investigating forces to hear victims' voices more, to expose criminal gangs more, and a story like this that that um, kind of crushes that um, in in its in its outworkings is is very damaging for frail people who need to speak up on some of these things and need yeah. to be heard coming forward. And so there's a number of narratives coming through this that I think expose holes in society, expose holes in things, but also expose vulnerabilities. And it's how we cover those vulnerabilities. And I don't think um, the way media has covered some of these things is helpful. And I don't think that's uh, you know going to bring greater success into some of these areas. There's a need for people to understand that gangs operate through society and a recognition of that, that that doesn't limit or racialize it. And if we look at what was in the press in the last week, um, that more than 1,500 police officers have been accused of violent offences against women and girls over a six-month period. That's only six months in the last kind of year. Then that's a really good reminder of um, what we tend to do, which is uh, as humans, we take the thing that we are afraid of in ourselves and in, in those closest to us and we project it onto another group to make them the enemy. And so um, the, the challenge for all of us is to see that this kind of violence is much closer than we would like to believe. Like we, we know that most abuse happens within the family, those who are most close. And that's really hard to come to terms with. And so as we, what we really do psychologically is we push that threat out and say, it's not in here. It's not in my home. It's not in those that look like me. It's in the monsters and the monsters are those other people. Um, but what, of course, we have to face in this is in, in every institution. So we know in the Christian church how Christian churches and powerful people have polluted to shut down victims, that they have hidden um, and not uh brought and not brought um perpetrators to justice we know how close in that th- these things are to us and we know it's in the police we know it's all sorts of places so the sooner we can all go why rather than go rather than free you know the sooner we can say why does this happen how can we prevent it the, the sooner we'll actually do what everybody wants to do which is reduce this violence yeah totally I mean, that's totally right, Lucy, and I, 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 a little bit of me wants to take off on the Christian church piece there, but we can do that another time. <laughs> Just on the, on this story, Nigel, you know, we, we were talking before we record, started recording this about some of the elements that really come out immediately out of this story. What, 
what did this narrative look like when it when it started opening up when it's when it became clear what was happening there in Barrow? You you've read more of the, of the immediate story than, of this than in the Barrow had. What what did this look like? Well, I think uh, it's at what point the story broke, and I think on uh, from reading in the, some of the news articles, um, it seems that one of the big points, the big turning point, was when Eleanor uh, put stuff up on social media. That was a big point. It went public. Ended up with over a hundred thousand people following those posts. Bearing in mind that this was during lockdown. Yeah. And during lockdown, everyone was living on social media. And so narratives on social media are very powerfully driven okay. and actually more powerfully driven than many of the things on the news articles, which were rather samey doing the same thing on COVID and following a line to try and protect people. There was stuff happening on social media that was all over the place. And so I think some of those narratives went in deep there. Yeah. Also, I think combined with that, you also had the sense of something change. Things became about people's own homes, and 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 so the the understanding of how to other other people <laughs> became stronger. And so I've I almost saw um, this is my personal view. I saw COVID as an incubation time for separation really where people with went with their own ideas into a bunker <laughs> and those ideas got stronger and coming out yeah and so in some of these things combined a number of things came together to make the perfect storm here and and i'm not um, you know we're, we're in in other settings or previous years it may not have been as strong as it was but I think the the COVID did have an element to play in this, as far as I can tell, looking at the news articles. So you've got a young woman <clears throat> telling a story, putting it on social media, 100,000 people responding in a very, in a, in a climate that was very fertile for stories, narratives, conspiracies, and all those sort of things, because everybody was... You know, this was a, probably a welcome rabbit hole for people to go down instead of the, the COVID conspiracies. Um, and so you get that you get that story out there in social media that is now shown to be groundless. And then you get what 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 was the response to that? I mean, people people didn't question it; they took it as fact, mm -hmm. primarily because. The narrative out there amongst many of that 100,000 people is that it is point proven that Muslim men do this stuff and therefore you don't need to begin to even critique it. You don't need to check it. You just assume it's true. And amongst those who took that story up were notorious far-right characters like Stephen Ashley Lennon, Tommy Robinson, who who pick up on these stories and then immediately multiply them out a hundred times further than they've already gone. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, and and yet you had situations like a restaurant um, going from seventy to eighty orders a night down to um, single figures because they were tied up in this story. 
So let's think about what's the impact of something like this. So one one thing to um, just be conscious of is on the one hand, um, trauma plays out in quite, can be quite distinct ways. For some people, it plays out in kind of externalizing, like so in conflict and aggression and things that, particularly if you're a young man, get labeled as well, this makes sense because you're a man, so we expect this kind of behaviour from you and people don't look and go, could this person have been abused? But also internalising behaviours. So, um, and that, I'm not not to say that this is always how it goes in terms of gender, but but it plays out, the point is trauma plays out in unexpected ways. So for some, there is a question in this case, which is doing, can we make sense of why someone would do this in relation to their own story? This kind of thing doesn't tend to come from nowhere. No. So there have been psychological reports, etc. But um, but I suppose what I would observe is that the, what we te- what we tend to see when someone has experienced profound sexual abuse and trauma is that it's really hard to talk about it, and people t- often take a long time to disclose because they are really scared of what will happen when they do. So a piece of research that came out of um, my team a while ago was that it takes an average of about seven years for yeah. someone to talk because they tend to know when they say something, the reaction, um, they might be, if it's someone in their family, it's very hard to say, um, my uncle did this or my mother did this because you have a complicated relationship with that person and you know what's going to happen is going to disrupt profoundly the the place that you live now imagine if you add into that um the way that the public perceive um the faith or the the ethnicity of the person that did something to you so if you are a white young woman who is 15 and you say to your friend you finally get up the courage to say someone i know did this to me that, that's going to be very hard, but probably what's not going to happen is that that person immediately thinks the reason they did that to you is because they're white and they're a Christian. And that's exactly what I expect of white Christian men. But if you are a Muslim young woman, woman who's 15 and you take the risk of saying to your white friend, this person in my life who happens to share the same um, ethnicity and religion as me, because it is also the case that just as Christian white men will abuse Christian white young women, Muslim (laughs) Pakistani men might abuse Pakistani Muslim young women because it happens in every culture. But what is activated if you disclose in our society that, that the perpetrator happened to be Muslim and Pakistani is that that happened because they were Muslim and Pakistani. And therefore, if you are that victim, are you going to say anything? Because you know that that is not the case. That's not the case that they did it because of that. But what will get triggered and activated is this awful thing that is in our culture, which is that you are now going to write off all the people who are also share that faith and share that ethnic background because you think it's because they are that that this happened. And so you're less likely to disclose um, so that's why we have to resist this, because we need as many young people for whom this has happened to talk about it and feel safe to talk about it and know that who is, whoever is going to listen to them is not going to jump to assumptions that, um, that, that do violence to that part of their identity. Because what you're saying is like, well, your Muslim identity is a problem because we think that the Muslim identity more generally is a problem and that we associate it with abuse. And that's not the case. 
And and I think it's also authorities' abilities to deal with some of these things, and and the belief and the lack of, um, you know, sort of religious literacy and other such things in authorities, propound this issue, because they they don't they feel awkward. I don't know how to deal with this, and as a result of that, deal with it in a particular way that isn't always helpful in in the way forward. And so, so Nigel, what's the what's the story with the police's treatment and response to this story? When did they get involved with it? Um, I think they got involved fairly early on, um, as far as we know. <laughs> um, so reports were being made. So um, there was an initial report she did of abuse um, from someone, and then um, from that. It started a whole system. So, so there were many, many reports she made ac- accusing men of abuse. And one of those young guys, um, Jordan uh, Trengove, spent 73 days in prison as a result of some false rape claim there uh, until he was released. And that fell down because she withdrew her case from the prosecution and then he was told he was released. But then the stigma of all of that stayed with him and and to the to this day. Um, so so there were issues of false rapes to start with, and then gradually the stories got worse and worse. The police were involved from when things were reported initially. And when did they take on a, a, a racial dimension? I'm not sure the police in in what's come out necessarily did. But what I'm saying is in oh, a yeah. lot of cases, there is an awkwardness in yeah. authorities. And so I think the uh, – and a lot of them are working hard on it. So yeah. I, th- I think I think it's not necessarily no, – yeah. yeah. I was thinking more of when – sorry, just not clear there. When did the r- racial dimension in our accusations take – were, were they there from the beginning or was it – was it well, th- this is what, uh, in the sentencing, the the judge said he couldn't make this a racial issue <laughs> yeah. uh, in ter- in terms of this because her accusations were all different nationality. Right. You know, mm-hmm. it was white and Asian, and so on. There was no discrepancy in her uh, regarding these things. But the far but right obviously picked up. That's the, yeah. The I think so, the Guardian article said um, that that Eleanor Williams sort of some of her worst allegations were for Mohammed Ramzan. And what she said was that he was the head of an international grooming gang who trafficked her and dozens of other girls around Northwest England and abroad. And all you need to do is hear that story. And, I, and unless she said the same thing about the two other white men around um, both being heading up grooming gangs, that language, and the trafficking, yeah. um, and the, that particular, because we know... That that was those were features of cases in Rochdale and Rotherham, but the narrative around the association of Muslim Pakistani businessmen with with the gangs and the trafficking, which then took off in the kind of public media and public imagination, which hasn't been well challenged enough. I think unless unless she had those same accusations for the others, I think we could look at that and say, mm-hmm. even if we can't establish that it was racially motivated, what she was drawing on in the shape of her accusations was was an, uh, certainly an understanding of what is going to energise the public for my cause and, and, and the, the kind of defences, people leaping to her defence and buying merchandise and all the rest of it. Yeah. yeah, and 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 I think at, at some point she got that 
she must have felt that feeling of power of public support and i'm i'm sure that affected things um but but you know her own sister uh, witnessed against her uh, for the prosecution um basically showing that a holiday that they'd taken her on for her birthday uh was this whole she presented as as part of that and i think the 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 family breakdown in this would be horrendous in fact this story just has breakdown at every single point in it yeah. it's a it's a story of pain um probably in eleanor as well um in, in exactly this. and that's the fact that's the fact that is so sad about this that it's probably something deeply some deep issue that she's experienced somewhere back way beyond yeah. that is now manifesting itself in so many stories that are ruining the other lives. Yeah, and I think this is one of the things brought out by the sentencing. So I, I listened to the judge's sentencing, okay. and and in that, um, this mystery of why she did what she did yeah. um, is still there, still hangs over, no one knows. She hasn't opened up about it it hasn't come from anywhere she refused even in her final statement says i'm not saying i'm guilty i made a few mistakes but i'm not saying i'm guilty that leaves every single one of these people still in danger in society it leaves everything raw and for what purpose is it for an appeal later is it for any of these things but she's gone down for is it eight and a half years and and um and she'll serve half of that and then come out on license and and so that's that's basically what will happen going forwards from here i think our thing in looking at this is to look what lessons can we learn from this sad occasion are there things that need to be spoken of into society to help that situations like this not occur um, and actually enable victims to come forward. I think there's a number of things here where this ha- shows the vulnerabilities of society more than it shows uh, just the vulnerabilities of, of, of a, a, a girl who's been false. <laughs> it's, it's, it shows a lot more about us as a society. Yeah. I suppose the one thing, uh, I mean, I, it's really important to underline right at the beginning is that Sexual abuse, men upon girls, men upon young men, every which way does take place. Mm-hmm. And whatever, however false her stories were, the reality is we know it is a huge problem in society. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can't deny that. And we want to be supportive of anybody who's coming forward to make allegations mm. and we also want to make sure that their claims are taken seriously and sadly you know the the, the, the sad reality is she's made very hard for people who have been abused co- to come forward yes i think that's we right i think we have to yeah we have to ask ourselves how could I personally and then my community, my institution, be as safe a place as possible for somebody to talk about what is happening or has happened or um, what is going on in terms of any kind of any kind of abuse um, and start there and to look at what is it what is it that would make um, 
me unsafe and whether that's about making assumptions about what's happened, about victims or perpetrators, the kinds of knee-jerk reactions that actually don't help victims and make it make abuse more likely to be driven underground, which only serves to embolden those who want to abuse because they're protected by that. So anything that makes it less safe for people to disclose perpetuates abuse and means it carries on in secret and in silence and in the dark. So I think I think this is one of those stories that just shows us this, this will make it easier for people to abuse rather than harder. And so um, let's not be those people that uncritically just share things without curiosity, that um, um, make assumptions about who abuses and why. Let's stay open-minded, curious, and and more than anything, look at what is closest to us and people like us that makes abuse possible. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And uh, I think this will run and run. (laughs) Um, uh, Mm. But I think... In in looking at this, there are some very key issues regarding truth and social media, and some of those things that that you know you've you've got a paper that went down part of this thing, whether that was the factor that killed it off or not, but but actually people who did have the courage to report news and report straight ended up being persecuted and pushed down you know there's a lot in this of narrative stories where society is and i think there's a lot to learn and and process through this and i hope um you know that that can be done effectively um you know going forward and protect victims and bring them out to be able to tell their stories and and i think also for uh law enforcement is actually believing them, but also keeping a critical eye on the whole situation as well and and working through and finding those points where they have to go, actually, there's a lot of false things here. We need to, this isn't going the way it, it needs to. But I think that belief in the public needs to be something and how media handle themselves around these issues uh, are very key. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, shall we leave it there? And thank you for listening to our podcast and hopefully you can join us uh, next week as well. Okay. Thanks so much, Nigel.